Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you and good to be with you for worship tonight. Our call to worship is from Psalm 66, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his names. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we are here once again to end our day singing your praises, to worship you. And we are grateful for uh, the strength that you have provided us to be here together as a church body. And we pray that you would bless this service and that you would um, do amazing things, things that we couldn't expect, uh, things in our heart, things in our lives, that you would answer prayer, that you would uh, empower us for uh, living a holy life this week, a life that brings glory to you and uh, changes people's hearts as well. So God, would you bring faith this evening? Would you strengthen faith? Would you do all of this um, in your honor? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first hymn is hymn 111. I invite you to stand as we begin our worship service with hymn 111. Amen. You may be seated. We'll move into our time of corporate prayer. Uh, we have an opportunity to confess our sin, to bring our request before God, and to do that together as one body, and to also have a time of silent prayer and individual prayer. Um, you'll find in your hymnal, we've done this in the past, at the very back you'll find the Psalter readings. And if you would, I invite you to turn to Psalter reading thirty for Psalm 32. This is a responsive reading. It's also a responsive prayer that we join in together. So after we read this, uh, we'll go into a time of silent prayer in which you can confess, you can come before God with whatever it might be that comes to mind, and he hears you and will answer you. So if you would, I will read the non-bolded parts, and if you would read the bolded parts, that's how we'll proceed. Uh, has everyone, everyone found it? Anyone have questions? Okay. Let's begin. Blessed is he 
whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. You are my hiding place. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Let's go before God in some time of silent confession and prayer. And I recommend if you don't know what to pray for, use this, this Psalter reading as a way to, um, uh, for things to pray about. Whatever might stick out to you, um, that is a fruitful way to pray. So let's go before God in prayer now. Dear Lord, we know it is no small thing to have a clear conscience before you, to know that we are righteous in you, that our righteousness is imputed to us by Christ, by faith alone. And so we sit here this evening in humble reliance upon you, in humble joy that you have forgiven our sin that you promise to always forgive us of our trespasses and sin. And God, you give us this good word from Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. God, we bless your name this evening. There are many in this church who bless your name in the midst of great pain and great suffering. Uh, There are some who are under the weight of great anxiety and worry about what is coming into the future. There is innumerable things that concern us, that worry us, that shake our faith, that cause us to fear, and yet, Lord, you tell us you are near to us, you hear us, you answer our prayers, you walk with us, and you do that for your glory so that we might praise you. So, God, as we worship you this evening, as we worship you this week, Would we come to you often in prayer? Would you lead us to yourself to rely on you this week, even tonight? Lord, we need you. We pray you would open our eyes to see and hear your word afresh this evening. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 
As we take up our evening offering, we'll sing our next hymn, which is hymn 494, which is Forgive Our Sins as We Forgive, hymn 494. Let's sing that together. now I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11 for our evening passage, our evening message. Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 20. We're in the last third of Mark in which we find the passion narrative, the last week of Jesus' life. And it is quite an amazing section of scripture. This evening we have uh, a pretty fascinating passage uh, two very different paragraphs, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing them with you. Let me read our passage this evening, and then I'll pray for our message. This is Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me for a moment. Lord, we hear this passage and we want to know you better through it. So would you uh, teach us? Would you speak to our hearts? Encourage us? Challenge us? Help me, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this section of scripture is... Uh, knowingly confusing in some ways, uh, we like to, as Presbyterians, mainly like to dissect a passage we don't really quite understand and find ways to study it rather than seeking to apply it sometimes. 
but I hope that we can apply this well this evening. We all have authorities in our life. We all have authoritative voices in our life for every kind of thing, whether you are looking for parenting advice, whether you are going to a podcast, whether you are listening to someone's uh, preaching or theology, uh, you go to someone for advice on money management, you go to someone who is an authority on that, or the best clothing or whatever. Recently, I have been learning about leather boots, leather boots, and I found an authority on leather boots on YouTube. And there's a guy who, you, you might know him, I don't know his name, but he cuts boots open down the middle and he analyzes the different layers of the boot. Because, as he'll tell you, you can look at the outside of a boot or a shoe and you can tell sort of what the quality is of the boot, but until you cut into it and see the layers and how it's put together, to see how the stitching is stitched, if it's stitched to last, or if it's cheap and not well done, and so on. So I trust this man as my authority who I've never met simply because he seems to know what he's talking about. He cuts these boots open, which is something I would never do, and he seems to know about the quality of leather and, and things such as that. So we all have authorities in our life and reasons to trust them as our authority. And the question this passage gives to us tonight, or poses to us and to you, to me, is what authority does God have in your life right now? What authority does God have in your life? At what point do you go, I'll just go with what makes the most sense to me. If there's something difficult or something we have a question about and something we just are not willing to go to God's word about, what is it? that will just make up a decision for that makes the most sense to us. Usually, it's the things that we want to do the most that will uh, bend Scripture or put it to the side. The things we want to justify. We'll look to Scripture and ask the question, do I really trust this? Do I really trust every word? Is this my authority on this particular thing in life, or is it someone or something else? Why do we put our trust in Scripture in the first place? Why do we put our trust in Scripture? Is it because it makes the most sense? Is it because it's clearer than the other religious books of the world? Or maybe you believe the Bible because there aren't any flaws or errors. It seems to be well done. But these reasons won't ultimately be enough to make the Bible your authority. We'll see in this passage that when the authority of God is not your main authority, several things happen. The opinions of other people will control you. Your prayer life will be non-existent or trivial or feel trivial. And you'll put your feelings on the throne of ultimate judgment rather than Jesus. So let's look at three different things to examine these. We'll look at the root of our authority, the conflict of our authority, and the fruit of our authority. Okay, So let's look at the root of our authority authority. It's a somewhat confusing passage, so we're going to look first at Jesus's authority and then circle back to the section on prayer when we'll have a clearer understanding. Look at verse 27 as we start looking at the root of our authority. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? The chief priests and the scribes and the elders all encompass what is called the Sanhedrin, the religious and quasi-political figures of that day. They are the religious authority. And they ask Jesus generally, what makes you think you can say all this stuff? What makes you think you can do all these things? What makes you think you can walk into this temple and 
flip the tables over and tell everyone to get out. And Jesus responds expertly with a question asking them, was John's baptism from heaven or from man? We know Jews didn't like to say the name of God out loud, so they would change the name. They would substitute in from heaven instead of from God. So what they're asking is, or what Jesus is asking is, was the baptism of John from God or from man? If John is from God, they have no excuse not to believe John and thus Jesus. If John is from man, they get kicked out of their powerful places of authority because, as we see in the passage, that the people think John is from God. And John says, Jesus is greater than I am. So if you believe me, you must believe in the greater one, the Messiah. Jesus expertly puts the Sanhedrin in a pickle, a pickle. And we're in the same pickle. Because we have to decide what authority Jesus actually has to do and say the things that he does. Jesus' words, he says, come directly from the Father. Jesus does all his Father's will. That's all Jesus does is his Father's will. Thus, Jesus' words are God's words. What Jesus says, God says. We might ask the question, what does Jesus think about the authority of the Bible? How did Jesus use the Bible? What did he think about it? He had a very high view of the authority of Scripture. In verse, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 15, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is a way of saying the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then in Matthew 19, this is really interesting, Jesus tells us that in Genesis, God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But when you go back to that very passage in Genesis, we see it's the author of Genesis writing that, speaking that. It's Moses, the inspired author of Genesis, who is writing that. So, Jesus is saying, God says. But when you're reading Genesis, it's Moses. Thus, Jesus says and believes that what Scripture says is what God says. And Jesus, of course, didn't simply believe the Bible. He let it regulate every practice of his life. He lived his life every step of the way by God's word. So the root of Jesus' authority is the Bible because it's God's inspired word, not because it stands up to things like logical arguments, though it does, or because we have archaeological proof that somehow it's from God, though we do have great archaeological evidence. The Westminster Confession says that the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be believed because it is the word of God. Thus, if you trust the Bible to be God's word because you've studied the history of manuscript transcription or because it makes sense to you or whatever reason that's not from God, from the Holy Spirit, they won't be enough to convince you that it is true and authoritative. And this is helpfully illustrated in our passage in verse 26, which is a little bit of a joke. Uh, would you look at, if you, if you have your Bible open, curious, do you have verse 26 in your version? Does anyone, raise your hand if you see verse 26. 
Okay, one, two, two, three. Three, four people, five. So some of us have verse 26, some of us don't. I bet you the people that don't have verse 26 have a little note in there that says at the bottom, some manuscripts include such and such from verse 26. I point this out um, to talk to you a little bit about how our Bibles came to be as we think about the authority of Scripture. Because once you start to dig into the details of how our Bibles that you hold today came to be, a lot of people, it shakes their faith. It shakes what they thought was true about God, about the Bible, and, and so on. So if you did not know, our chapter system that we have in our Bibles today came from a man named Stephen Langdon, who was an English church leader in the early 1200s. And verses came 300 years later in the 1500s. And I believe the gentleman who started this system, this verse system, goes by the name of Robert Eisen, or something of that nature. He was a French printer and was working on a Bible concordance at the time. So the Bible you have today, the one that you're holding in your hands, is the result of many developments and aids and reading aids over the years. But before the 1200s, most people were reading and encountering Scripture as units, as one cohesive unit without any numbers, without any verses. There are Bibles today that they sell. The ES, there are ESV reader Bibles called Reader's, reader's Bibles, Reader Bible. I have them. They are awesome because they take out all of the notes that's in Bibles today, and it helpfully just clarifies, gives you just chapter numbers, so that, and then you just have text. So you just are able to read without having to stop and look at notes. I recommend that if you are looking for a new Bible. So the earliest manuscripts of Mark don't contain chapter 11, verse 26. Though they're the exact words from Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, which says, If you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Without belaboring this more, um, many old manuscripts do contain verse 26, which is why many Bibles still have that verse today. Um, if you're a King James Version fan, they also include verse 26, even though the main manuscript or source that they used for their translation doesn't include it. So it's helpful to remember that our Bibles have been painstakingly transcribed and copied over the years by God's help, but that means there are questions that we have about the Bible that we hold itself. There are, in fact, scribal errors there are mismatches. There are verses that are here, of course, as we see, that aren't in other places. And so if the authority of the Bible for you rests on an airtight, perfect, perfectly put together book, then you're out of luck. Lord, uh, thanks be to God, uh, we actually have great confidence in the Bibles that we have today. Great, great confidence. Better than any other work of uh, literature that we have from that time period, especially. Um, if you have questions about that, we can talk another time. But we believe, as this church and this denomination, that the original sources, the original manuscripts for our Bible are without error. Are without error. And I thought helpfully... One commentator said that in the final analysis, no cardinal doctrine, no essential truth is affected by any viable variant in the surviving New Testament manuscripts. For example, the deity of Christ, his resurrection, his virginal conception, justification by faith, and the Trinity are not put in jeopardy because of any textual variation. Confidence can therefore be placed in the providence of God in preserving the scriptures. 
So do you have confidence in your Bible from man or from God? Ultimately, it must come from God. It's the Holy Spirit who testifies to us that the Bible is God's inspired word. So if Jesus believed that God is the root of authority, God's word, then you and I must examine what the root of our authority is. What is it really? Which brings us into the conflict of our authority. The conflict of our authority, which is the second point. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem. Again, this is, we're reading this again. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Skipping to verse 32, it says, They were afraid of the people. This is the Sanhedrin. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. When the Sanhedrin say, We do not know, they actually do know. The Sanhedrin's authority wasn't God or the Torah. It was, of course, themselves. Tim Keller said that in the 18th century, European Enlightenment thinkers insisted that the modern person must question all tradition, revelation, and external authority by subjecting them to the supreme court of his or her own reason and intuition. He says, we are our own moral authority. And this comes into force, especially today, even stronger. But it didn't start in the 18th century. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of that day, their authority was themselves. They wanted to hold on to it. And Christians will often believe that prohibitions or when the Bible says to not do something, that if it doesn't actually line up with what we feel is right, if it conflicts with our feelings and intuitions, then it must not be true. We must not be reading it correctly. I thought this quote from Carl Truman, he wrote a book called Something About the Modern Self, and I wish I wrote it down, but it's a very interesting book. He wrote this about how today we have this authority from within ourselves. He says this, and it's a little jargony, but I'll sum it up in a sentence after. He says, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imagination prioritizes victimhood. It sees selfhood in psychological terms. It regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. All these things play into legitimizing and strengthening those groups that can define themselves in such terms. They capture, one might say, the spirit of the age. In other words, he's saying, if you have an authority that comes from outside of yourself, then you ought to be questioned. Then you can't be trusted. But if your authority comes from within, then you have the support of our modern culture. If your identity and your authority come from within, you have the support of the current of our culture. If you're an authority... On yourself, Carl Truman is trying to say, he says, then words are weapons, and thoughts about you can be weapons. They challenge your truth. So if anyone challenges you on what you believe is right, then, of course, there is great conflict. But now listen to Paul from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
Paul's authority, of course, is God's word. It's this alien authority, which just means it's outside himself. It comes into conflict, this alien authority, with every other authority, especially ourselves. The Sanhedrin aren't the only ones who don't want God to be their authority. Or, of course, the modern man. It's a, it's a conflict each of us finds ourselves in. Whose authority do we ultimately trust for the life that we think we ought to have? <clears throat> so, <that's, clears throat> sorry, my voice. Um, Keith, if this is yours, thank you. I'm going to drink it right now. The Sanhedrin think that they're holding on to their power, right? They think they're holding on to their power by being their own authority. And yet, and this is the greatest part of this passage, which we're about to get into, they have no idea that they are forfeiting, that they are surrendering, that they are giving up the greatest power in the universe, which I will argue is the power of prayer. And this is the fruit of God's authority in our lives, which is our last point. Let's look at the fruit of our authority. We'll go back to verse 20 if you want to read with me. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The greatest power you can possess is the power given to you by the highest authority in the universe, right? Which is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to give you an illustration. Uh, We have a block party coming up. It's not a church event. It's a personal event that me and others, maybe some of you here, um, are a part of. Every year we do this now, and it's great. We block off a part of the street, over here on East Park Street. We just have a good time. We eat food. uh, We talk, listen to music. Kids run around. It's great. But my favorite part of the block party is putting up the fences that block off the street, right? Why is that my favorite part? Because nine out of ten people uh, just drive right through this stop sign. I don't know if you all know that. The stop sign over here, can't remember the cross streets. Not a lot of people like to stop <coughs> stop at that stop sign. So I love to block the street off because they are forced to stop. So when we host this block party, I have the authority of the Louisville city government to close down this section of the street. And so when someone asks me, by what authority... Are you closing off this street, sir? And I'll say, by the authority of the Louisville government. And it's a wonderful authority to have. Um, I have the power, essentially, of the mayor over a single section of the street to enforce this silly stop sign that no one seems to want to stop at. This is, to me, a true power, true authority. Um, It's not really my favorite part of the block party, but I do enjoy it. So is it any wonder when Jesus says these things in this passage? This is a striking passage about prayer because we think this is too much. Did Jesus really say these things about prayer? Is this what really happens when we pray? If God is Christ's authority, if Jesus is God himself, 
Of course, he would tell his believers, his followers, to pray for such things that we think is impossible. He's basically saying, is it not clear that if we pray according to God's will, we can trust so much that it will come to pass that Jesus tells us to believe that we already have it, that it's already been answered, that we've already received it. Charles Spurgeon is a great uh, preacher and pastor. He said, prayer is not a fancy or fiction. It is a real, actual thing coercing the universe, binding the laws of God themselves in fetters and constraining the High and Holy One to listen to the will of his poor but favored creature man. We are the creature man. He goes on to say this amazing quote about prayer. I'm going to read it now again. He says, You have power in prayer. And you stand today among the most potent ministers in the universe that God has made. And he's referring to the church attenders, the Christians. He says, you have power over angels. They will fly at your will. You have power over fire and water and the elements of earth. You have power to make your voice heard beyond the stars where the thunders die out in silence. Your voice shall wake the echoes of eternity. The ear of God himself shall listen, and the hand of God shall yield to your will. He bids you cry, thy will be done, and your will shall be done. When you can plead his promise, then your will is his will. Jesus, like Spurgeon is speaking about, is inviting us and empowering you to pray on his authority. And if you believe who Jesus says he is, and you pray according to his will in all things, you have the highest confidence that God will hear you and will give you exactly what it is according to his will by faith. This is not Jesus saying, pray harder or find more conviction in your prayer. It has nothing to do with your feelings about your prayer. This is Jesus saying, have confidence in prayer, not because of your conviction, but because of God himself. If I can get the power of the city of Louisville to block off a street, What's possible for me if I have the power of the God of the universe who is telling me, who is inviting me to pray such things that we could never even imagine that they would be possible for him or for us? We are being invited by Jesus. As Jesus says in this prayer, we often ask, is it okay to pray for small things, for things that just don't really matter that much but would be nice to have whatever it says jesus says whatever things you pray about he says things whatever you're praying about everything we're invited to ask god to implore him with the conviction that we've already received it that it's as good as done which made me ask the question how foolish am i how foolish are we when we set aside such a powerful activity to the whim of our convictions where we just say, I don't feel like praying or I haven't felt like praying recently. If that is the case for you, and it often is for me, we're called to build the fruit of God's authority into our lives. Make a time to be with God. How could you not if this is what Jesus is offering you according to his authority. This is a wonderful quote from another pastor. This is the last one, last quote about prayer. He says, remember the Lord will not hear you because of the arithmetic of your prayers. He does not count their numbers. He will not hear you because of the 
rhetoric of your prayers. He does not care for the eloquent language in which they are conveyed. He will not listen to you because of the geometry of your, par- of your prayers. He does not compute them by their length or by their breadth. He will not regard you because of the music of your prayers. He does not care for sweet voices nor for harmonious periods. Neither will he look at you because of the logic of your prayers, because they are well arranged and excellently, excellently compartmented. But he will hear you because you plead the person of Christ. The Holy Spirit inspire, inspires you, and the blessings which you shall ask shall surely come to you. So in reality, as we go back to this passage to close, the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities who come up to Jesus and ask him by what authority he's doing these things, in reality, they are unwilling to know by what authority Jesus is saying and doing these things. The judgment of the Sanhedrin is clouded by fear of popular opinion. As we saw, everyone held that John really was a prophet. So the opinion of the people was the most important thing. When we learn that to those unwilling to commit themselves to the authority of Jesus, to the authority of God and his word, Jesus says he refuses to commit himself. So if you refuse to commit yourself to him, he refuses to commit himself to you. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about or with Jesus. If you do not trust or commit yourself to the authority of God, found in his inspired word, lived in and through Jesus, applied by the Holy Spirit, neither will God commit himself to you. And so we're called this evening, you and I, believer and unbeliever especially, to commit yourself to the one who loves you so much that he came to earth, suffered, died, and rose from the grave, who is calling you now to cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you, who is saying, take up the power of God's authority and pray for great things, for small things, for all things. Do not neglect him, and he will not neglect you. Let's pray. Lord, prayer is often the area of the Christian life in which many of us say we struggle the most, I being one of them. So God, would you give us a heart by by your supernatural power that craves to be in your presence in prayer? And would you give us this boldness of faith and confidence because of your authority that we would pray for things according to your will that we would never pray for or even hope for on our own? Would you give us such great confidence in our prayer and would you cause us to see you at work through our prayer with you, through our communication, through our conversations with you? God, there is such great power that you offer your people. Would you remind us of that once again and move us to be near you? As you call us, as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. So Lord, pursue us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand for our last hymn to close our service, which is hymn 586, Take My Life and Let It Be. Let's sing hymn 586 together.
No, I did not choose that tune on purpose. I've, I chose the wrong tune, but I enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Um, go with God's blessing now. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.